Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm here with Russell. Well, hello, everybody. Hi. And we are here with Bethany McLean. She is a journalist and an author and contributing editor to Vanity Fair. She lives in Chicago and she has co-authored The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and The Scandalous Fall of Enron. Also an excellent documentary. And her second book um, was All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis. And she co-authored another book, three books, <laughs> well, Shaky Ground, The Strange Saga of the U.S. Mortgage Giants. And now she has a fourth book out that is all her own. And we're excited to talk a little bit about that today because we are in the, the home of, of fracking in Canada. We are in Alberta. And uh, Bethany has written a book uh, called Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the world. And I love this title. <laughs> it's great. I want to find out more about it. Uh, Bethany, the contributing editor at Vanity Fair, uh, how are you doing today? I am doing great. How about you guys? I'm here in Chicago. Um, it's sunny. Um, um, could be worse. <laughs> could be. Things could always be worse. Even We are all about as healthy as can be. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> That's awesome. You, you know, I always kind of thought of you as a Chicago gal, and I had imagined that you were like a Northwestern journalism grad, and I had that that you know idea in my head. But you're you're actually uh, from Minnesota. Yeah, I'm not a Chicago person at all. So I grew up in I grew up in northern Minnesota, and um, a mining town, town called Hibbing, which has as its main claim to fame the fact that it is the home of Bob Dylan. Um, oh right. Yeah, so I'm literally girl from the North Country. Maybe not. Yeah, you are. You were the girl from the North Country <laughs> Fair. That's amazing. Um, and then I lived in New York for most of my adult life, but I came here about a decade ago. Um, so I'm not really a Chicago at all actually <laughs> right and and so you probably moved to new york down from boston when you were at williams college Yes, um, the Berkshires, not Williams is a little outside of Boston, but the Berkshires close enough, Massachusetts. Yes, I went straight to New York after Williams. And you studied math and English at, at Williams. I did. Yeah. How does anyone do that? <laughs> She has a very balanced brain. <laughs> I just <laughs> yeah, kind of a confused mind, I think. Actually, you know, honestly, I think it is um, a part of the tension in my brain between liking chaos and liking order um, in that um, writing is to some extent chaos and math, at least at the less um, extreme, extreme ends of it is also uh, is about finding order. And so I'd find something quite satisfying about trying to write and trying to write a paper and then doing math problems or math proofs, because maybe one, one, one can be all over the place where the other feels very tight and controlled. Does that make sense? The more, the more, the more math, the more extreme math gets, the less that's the case. I mean, very advanced math is almost is more like art than, than anything else. But, um, but, but at least at the more basic levels it it, it feels very structured. I don't, I don't know if there's anyone else like that. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's amazing. <laughs> so, so you you graduated, and then you became an investment analyst, investment banking analyst at Goldman Sachs, and and with the writing, you wrote a column at Forbes at the same time. No, so not not quite. Um, um, I went to work at Goldman after college. Um, uh, because I didn't know what else to do. And I was, I was a female math major and it was, that was appealing to that. that that's aiming pretty high though, with, with not knowing what to do. Well, they, they, the, all the investment banks came to recruit it, at Williams and I had decided separately with the more advanced math got the less good I was at it. I don't like that. I kind of wish it were the other way around because I think there's something really cool in the odd brains of very skilled math, very people who are very, very good at advanced math. And I just, I wasn't, I sort of hit the proverbial black wall. Um, and so instead of going to math graduate school, I ended up feeling sort of lost my, my senior year and with no place to go. Um, um, I, it, it was, it was easy coming out of Williams to end up in, in investment banking. And the people who know me well refer to those as either alternately, either the lost years or Bethany, <laughs> or Bethany's dark period. So we'll just leave it. <laughs> 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 but then I left. <laughs> then I left. There's like, there's like 17 interviews at Goldman Sachs. Isn't that like, don't they have to like go through a whole process? Yeah, you do go through a whole process, but when you're young, it's easier to pretend or people uh. you what they want what they want to see in you. Anyway, so then I quit and went to Fortune and decided I'd always wanted to be a journalist. And so I I quit banking and um, went to work at Fortune. Okay. I worked in a bank for a short period of time, oh, not as an investment banker, but as a personal banker. Oh my goodness. What was that like? <laughs> it was, it was terrible. It was also my dark years and my lost years. <laughs> You took the test for investment to be stockbroker. Yeah, yeah. Like you like passed it with flying colors. Yeah, I, I mean, I also, I also like that with with numbers. I mean, definitely not advanced numbers. I'm not great at, but I like, I like that things add up. <laughs> right in life so many of the time when they don't add up or where when you try to analyze you you can't and the analysis breaks down there's something very appealing about i'm not going to call it made up world of math because maybe in some ways it's more real than the rest of the world but there's there's something very nice about the fact that things often do add up right there's there's yes. there, there's an answer and there's just one answer <laughs> exactly and if you're missing something you just have to look for it. Right. <laughs> what, was, what was the film with uh, Russell Crowe about the mathematician? Beautiful genius? Mind. Beautiful Mind. Yeah. I remember seeing a, an interview with the actual guy, and he said that the problem with math for him was that he was so seduced by patterns that actually weren't there, that he, his mind made up patterns that didn't exist. And like, that's, that's how I feel about my, like my whole personality. Like that's the problem with me is I just see things where they're not all the time. I don't think, I don't think that's a problem. I think that's, <laughs> that's a great gift. So who wants reality, particularly <laughs> far better if you can make up your own patterns. <laughs> so true. <laughs> you know, I first encountered you, um, I don't know. Maybe it was on Netflix, the Enron documentary. I'm not sure where I saw it. Um, but I remember that's where I first saw you as Enron, the smartest guys in the room. And one of the things I was, I, I was amazed by was not only were you a, a journalist and an, a, a wonky in, investment 
master, but you're also like just so incredibly self-possessed and natural in front of the camera. And I'm just, I'm wondering how, like how that whole thing came about for you. Uh, because I had just finished, um, an Ashtanga practice and come back to my, <laughs> my, my, uh, my then apartment and put stuck my very sweaty hair up on top of my head and said, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> you still had like that after practice glow and you're all like, yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, a slightly sweaty gleam to my face. That's why. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I think I was able to be really relaxed because, uh, the idea idea that that I was thrilled when Alex Gibney wanted to take the book and make a movie out of it but the idea that it would go anywhere was sort of laughable to me I was like oh this is great but really you're going to take this book and translate it into something visual and something that lots of people are going to understand and be interested in it so I I was quite relaxed because I it <laughs> The fact that that thing is still around today is, is, is a shock to me. So anyway. <laughs> and did you start practicing Ashtanga yoga when you were in New York? I did. So I started in the late 90s. Oddly enough, there was a, um, a little club in Midtown, um, a little athletic club that was very much one of those Midtown clubs where, you know, lots of bankers and lawyers go. And there was a woman there whose first name is Lisa, and she was the yoga teacher there. And she was an Ashtangi and decided that come hell or high water, she was teaching Ashtanga. And so that's actually how I got, got into it. That um, wasn't Lisa Shrimp, was it? Oh, I don't remember. I'm having, I don't remember her last name. I really should. I'm going to blame it on COVID brain because I, <laughs> I do. I know her relatively well. And she was, she was formative. I, 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 I think of her with gratitude a lot for introducing me to the practice. But so I, I came into the practice in a, in a different way in, in, in that sense. And then I started, um, I found Guy Donahue and I started practicing with him downtown, but I lived all the way on the Upper West Side on 109th oh. Street. So, and Guy was all the way down in the East Village. And so every once in a while, like once, once a week, I would make the track down to guys. And I'm, and I, wow, I totally forgotten that. But I remember talking about that with you once. When, when were you with Guy? It would have been the late nineties, but I was only there. I wasn't a regular in his studio because of where I lived. So I was probably yeah. only there once or twice a week. Um, but I would practice there from the late nineties through, I don't know, maybe Maybe two thousand, and then two thousand two or so, and then right. and then a guy named Christopher, who's yeah Hildebrand. Yeah, he he set up his own studio on Fifth Avenue, um, and it was a beautiful place. Although I think it ended up the funding ended up collapsing in some kind of scandal. Um, but then I, yeah. <laughs> but then I practiced there, um, and, yeah, that's right. and, and that was where I went mostly. Yeah, so Christopher was pra was teaching at Guy's in the afternoon. Yes. And then I was there in the morning, and we must have crossed paths at that point because I started in 2000, and I was there until uh, 2004. Yep. So we, wow. de we definitely would have crossed paths. And then I was mostly predominantly at Christopher's from probably, oh, I don't know, 2002, 2003 to, to when – to, um, to when, maybe it was later than that, 2004, 2005, to whenever it was, I left New York in 2009. 
And I think he went insane in some way. Which I hope is not correlated with Ashtanga. Right, right. That's no, there's a weird scurrilous, scurrilous rumors. <laughs> I just I want to take you back to um to Enron for a second. Um you had written I guess you'd written an article about Enron and you had you had you had thought in the article that they were overvalued. And then what happened? They be, it was discovered that it was just like a massive like pyramid scheme or something. Sort of, yeah. So I wrote this very skeptical article about Enron. I guess it was published in early 2001. Um, the title was quite meek. It was, is Enron overpriced? Um, and it was clear that nobody who was investing in the company or celebrating it understood how they actually made their money. And it was clear something was wrong, but I was too naive and the world was too naive. I think at that time to accept that it could be the massive fraud that it, that it, that it was. And it's kind of hard to imagine that now, but this was before the global financial crisis, before a lot of financial scandals. We all had a, it was when we were all supposed to, you know, get rich and live, live happily ever after and during the first dot com boom and, you know, the transition of our money into 401ks where we were all supposed to be able to manage it and, and make money. And the idea that companies could be up to nefarious things was kind of not part of that conversation for a while. It was a much, it was a much more naive time. And for me, the, the amount of complicity that it always takes to pull off these, these stories of business gone wrong, the number of people who have to look the other way to, to, to make it happen is it, still shocking to me. And I just, I would never have believed it. And so in Enron's case, they had bankers, they had lawyers, they had accountants, and all those people either signed off on what they were doing or, or looked the other way. And I, I wouldn't have believed that 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 was possible. And like I said, I'm, I'm still sometimes shocked by it when I when I think about it, despite all the other stories I've covered that involve the same dynamic. That's that's incredible, and that's really kind of your your career now. Like that's the kind of thing that you do is you you uncover these sorts of stories. Oddly enough, given that I'm very much Minnesota nice, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted I wanted to kind of put you in context for our listeners. Uh, it would be who maybe who haven't seen Enron or don't know your work, but it's 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 like if in, in Die Hard how John McClane took out Hans Gruber in a kind of cowboy no due process kind of way, Bethany McClain would have uncovered the rapid embezzlement at Nakatomi Plaza. That is an analogy I've never heard before, but I'm just, I like it. <laughs> good, good. So, if you could imagine my my panic when you, I think you interviewed me for like six hours for that Vanity Fair article. That's and in the middle of it, like not really having any kind of clear idea who you were. Like I looked down at Google and I realized who I was talking to. And I said, oh, snap, I'm fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea what's going to happen to me next. (sighs) Can you um, remind us of the title of that article? Oh, yeah, that was uh, Whose Yoga Is It Anyway by Bethany McLean at Vanity Fair. And I, I had the idea that the article was about the death of of a guru and how a community was going to have to take stock and, 
and regroup. Was was that your idea as well, Bethany? Is that your takeaway? Well, so the idea started much more specifically with um, Sonia Tudor-Jones coming into Ashtanga Yoga and some of the controversies surrounding that. Um, And... And that was just the gist for the article um, was, and, and so the, yes, the broader context, the, the death of a guru and who, who, appro- who appropriates or who his, who his um, message b- belongs to. Um, um, but the specifics of it were, were, were around her coming into this community with her own plan for where Ashanga was going. And of course you, you would have a, um, an in for that having, you know, studied, uh, her husband, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, and and the Jones uh, Investment Group being such a huge influence in the hedge fund world, like that would be you're just sort of the natural person to interview there. Yeah, although I think it was more because of my Shanga practice, honestly, because Paul Tudor Jones has never been press friendly, so there isn't really an an in, and in fact, if anything, um, he he was quite anti the the article in me. And so it, it, it didn't, it didn't work in my favor. <laughs> at, least, at least, at least beforehand, I think he was pleasantly surprised by how it came out. What spurred you on to write this article? So actually my, my editor at Vanity Fair um, was somehow connected to the Ashtanga world and knew some of the controversy that was going on um, between some of the old school teachers um, and Sonia coming in and opening up and opening up spaces. Um, and that was that tension was particularly acute in California where Tim Miller was. And, yeah. right. and, yeah, so, was that, and that. so that was, that was, that was the gist of it. And, you know, it could have been, and I think Paul Tudor Jones expected it to be, you could have written that story from a very um, stereotypical standpoint of the rich entitled woman coming in thinking this is, this is hers. But what I realized in getting to know Sonia was I thought that she was very, just extremely well-intentioned and a huge believer in Ashtanga. And she too wanted to do the right thing by this practice that, that she cherished. So it was nowhere near as simple and cliched as a, you know, terribly entitled woman thinking that, thinking she could take this over and push everybody else out. That just, that, that wasn't, that wasn't it at all. So I think I ended up writing a fairly, a fairly nuanced story. Um, but, but I always, but I find that really interesting, that whole idea of the, that broader idea of the death of a girl and what happens to the institutions they've put in place at that time. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you guys think did happen? What's happened in the last 10 years? I think you know the answer better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think these uh, spiritual communities, when the guru dies, they kind of have to tread water for a while and figure out where everyone fits in a, in a sense. Yeah. And then there's been some more recent controversy around Guruji, right? So yeah, that's, that's complicated the story a little bit too. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of, uh, devolution. Is that? (laughs) 
But the, the interesting thing to me about Ashtanga, maybe you guys would agree or disagree, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it, is that it actually isn't in this case. Sometimes when you have the death of a guru and a legacy, the battle is about money. And in this case, it never was because Ashtanga has never been a big moneymaker as, as, as a yoga practice, right? Because it is so grueling. It's never really captured kind of the public imagination, the way, I don't know, core power, those, those sorts of things have. And, and so it was never really about the money. It was about the legacy and people's sort of deep love for this and passion for this practice. Does that sound right to you guys? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly not even like in a, um, a Bikram or an Osho kind of way where there was, where the, I mean, certainly Patabi Joyce wore a lot of gold, <laughs> uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't really flaunted. The wealth wasn't flaunted in the same way that Bikram and Osho flaunted their wealth. And I think that actually got them into a lot, a lot more trouble and they got a lot more t- negative attention because of that. Yeah. And when I think you're spot on there too, when Patabi Joyce passed away, it seemed like uh, the people who were sort of positioning themselves were positioning themselves out of, um, uh, a desire to sort of be seen uh, as a authority on the practice, maybe rather than um, you know that it was going to make them a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> or a desire to spread the practice and see it maintained. Exactly, I, some desire to either make it more popular because of a deep belief in the good it does for people, or to see it maintained in the purest form possible. But I don't, I don't think that any either approach was ever really about money per se. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a really positive or like a good point that you've made that, I mean, Ashtanga yoga is not a big money maker as far as uh, career choices go. <laughs> well, the, the, the weird thing is, is that there is a little bit of a, a pyramid to it. And, and so we're all, we were all told, especially 20, 15 years ago that like never advertise, just hang a shingle don't put yourself out there and and just let people let it come to you. And yet there were a number of people who were getting, you know, some serious uh, attention from celebrities, and and also getting a an income from that from the from the rich and famous, and they were kind of sitting at the top of the pile. And there was a kind of I felt what was interesting about your article is that there was a, this kind of destabilization uh, to the pyramid where Sonia's presence was a little destabilizing. Uh, and like, so where's the, you know, who's actually, who's actually in charge? That's yeah, that's interesting. Yes. And I, and I suppose there is, there is, that is, that is a slightly more, cynical maybe way of thinking about it oh my goodness you're more cynical than i am a stopping thing yeah <laughs> not surprised to hear that said out loud <laughs> huh. i think yeah. it's re- i think that's a a good point though too because i mean you know coming from the the real sort of small tight little community that was growing up in Mysore for say, you know, around 20 years or so, uh, from the, you know, early eighties to, you know, the mid two thousands before Patabi Joyce passed away. Um, 
there, there definitely was a hierarchy. There was a hierarchy to people's uh, prestige and their how much time they'd spent in Mysore, how close they were to Patabi Joyce. Um, and so definitely having Sonia come in and, and open up the Joyce Yoga Studios was very destabilizing because all of a sudden that seemed like it had more prestige or more presence than these these people and teachers who had been practicing and, and um, devoted to the practice for, you know, 20 years. That's, that's so interesting. And I, I think, I think you're right. I've often thought about this, that as ugly as money is when money, as money can be, when money isn't there, sometimes the world is even uglier in the sense <laughs> in, in places where there isn't money. And so score is kept by prestige. It's more amorphous and, and subject to manipulation and insecurity and instability in, in a, in a way. And I'm not sure that's right, but, but maybe, maybe the, maybe the fairest way to say it is just that just because money isn't there doesn't mean ugly aspects of the human psyche can't be there too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, it was also really interesting with this destabilization, another destabilization with all the, um, you know, Patabi Joyce, the sexual assault or abuse that has been coming out over the last couple of years, um, you know, that everybody who was a senior teacher knew about already. Um, but it was never seen that way. They never viewed it that way. Um, but now their eyes are having to see it from a different perspective. And now all of a sudden, uh, being the right hand person to Patabi Joyce or being close to him is, um, a disadvantage. a disadvantage instead of an advantage. So again, it's sort of turned the pyramid upside down. That's interesting. As we're talking, I'm thinking about pyramids flipping around in my brain, like multiple pyramids and all of them shifting and flipping upside down and sideways. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. your math brain. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting. I think I also feel like um, the where, where we are now as a, as a culture 20 years later, um, I'm, I'm a little bit more concerned about how people are going to respond to a story and then make it, make their response public. And then you find yourself on the other end of being canceled for um, an opinion that before would have, would have been, you know, private. And I'm, and I feel like, like just having a conversation about these things, whether it's um, the influence of money on a culture, the influence of, of, um, uh, this, uh, that Patabi Joyce is a little handsy, um, just saying it that way, I'm now so much more at risk, uh, for, for abuse because I'm not strident enough in my denunciation. And it's a, it's a very, it's a very difficult time, I think, to, to speak out loud. Yeah, well, I, I fear that a lot because obviously I'm a journalist and, and, a, and, a, and a writer and I think when things can't be spoken out loud, they just get driven underground and become more poisonous for that. Um, 
And I think we have to be, there's something I read once years ago, and I don't remember where I read it, but it was most gracious interpretation as a way of being in the world, which is that when someone says something, you don't try to tear it apart and use their words as a reason to attack and cancel them. You think about their words, think about who the person is, and take the most gracious interpretation. And I I wish we we could all do that because... Because these, these, these things are sometimes complicated for someone who knew Pachabi Joyce well and saw the good sides of, of the man and doesn't want to insult someone who has passed away, who was a guru to them. It's, it's, there's something almost ugly about asking that person to become strident in their denunciation of him, right? And can't we all have a greater understanding for where each other is is coming from I, I i don't know we don't all have to believe the same things and say things in the same way and we don't have to all outstrident each other in a way to in order to show our our moral virtue there's just there's something about that that i i i find very upsetting mm-hmm. i'm glad you said it <laughs> <laughs> i can be one who gets canceled <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is well. I mean, this is our last episode, anyways. So. <laughs> not go out with the first bang. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me. Let me. Let's. Um, God, it's a little hot in this room. I uh, can we go back to your book? Um, the which one? The truth about fracking, <laughs> and how that book came about. Because it does. It is still, I think, very much in line with your career, which is kind of exposing. Uh, illusions and and popping them. And I, I wonder if you could talk about how that came about. So I was always interested in fracking, maybe like Harmony growing up in Texas. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, being from Canada and you, Russell, with your, your background in Texas, you both yeah. you both understood it in, innately. Um, and I grew up in a mining town in northern Minnesota, and I was always very surprised in, by the focus in the business community and the business press on what happened on the East Coast with finance and what happened on the West Coast with tech. And no one really cared about fracking. People cared from an environmental standpoint, but it was it was as if this giant thing that had all this potential to reshape the U.S. for better or for worse was just kind of not part of our our, our narrative. So, me being me um, and an oddball, I was I was I was obsessed with it, and I was obsessed with hmm. larger than life characters like Aubrey McClendon, the former CEO of Chesapeake, in this in this industry. But the thing that really piqued my interest was a longtime source um, saying to me that 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 there was this um, this fundamental con- contradiction at the heart of fracking because while it did have this potential to to change the course of the United States because the oil and gas was real. It's not like they were making up the oil and gas, but he said the finances don't work. It doesn't make money. The economics don't work. Um, and there's, you know, from, from misrepresentation to outright fraud going, go, going on there. And I thought, that's really amazing. You have this whole industry that is arguably changing our economy and changing our environment, and it doesn't work financially. And so I got very interested in trying to figure out that, that conundrum, um, whether it was possible that these two things could exist at the same time or whether somebody had it wrong and why, if they did coexist at the same time, how that was likely to play out, which, which, which was going to win. Well, I'm interested. It's, 
it's is it is it like a a dollar spent is a dollar earned or is it worse than that? So it's worse than that because if you think about fracking, it's a really really expensive process, and so you pour all this money into wells in order to get them to produce oil and gas, and then you sell the oil and gas, and that's how you get back your your investment. Um, but it's been hard because fracking drove down natural gas prices because there was so much natural gas and oil prices have been low. It's turned it's turned out in essence you can't make enough money from selling the stuff to pay for the cost of getting it out of the ground. Right. <laughs> and that it's that's been complicated. The complicated dynamic on top of that is that Ideally, in business, you want something that you invest in it, and then it keeps producing cash. It keeps working. You don't have to keep putting more and more money into it to keep getting to keep getting more and more um, to keep to keep getting the same amount of cash. I'm trying to think if there's a good um, analogy to an Ashtanga practice, but maybe it'd be- <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have heard of like. It's like 1,500 wells to produce the same amount of oil that Saudi Arabia does with 100. Right. Or it might be worse than that. And that's because the decline rate. So you invest in a well and it produces lots and lots of oil at first. And then every, so it would be the opposite of practice. Because so you invest, you practice and all is coming, practice and nothing is coming. So you invest in a well. <laughs> <laughs> you invest in a well and it produces lots of oil at first. And then each year after that, the next year it produces like 80% less oil than it did in the first year. So instead of your well getting better and better or even just staying the same, it gets worse and worse. So you can't just invest and have a well that keeps that keeps producing. You invest and it runs out. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Is if you practice and instead of getting better with practice or, or 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 learning more you actually went the other way you became stiffer and tighter and your mind was more tied up in knots yeah i think that's exactly what happened <laughs> that <work? laughs> yeah that's what happened to harmony and I. <laughs> we're stiffer tighter we're angrier <laughs> I think that's um, my love. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> He's just turning into a grumpy old man over we are here. Grumpy. Um, I'm for sure a grumpy old girl. <laughs> well, it's, it's fascinating to me because this conversation comes up every single time that we have a family gathering. Uh, there are there is no um, oil wells in Alberta that are not fracking wells. There's 170,000 fracking wells in Alberta. There's no oil industry without it. Um, Harmony's father, Doug, uh, my father-in-law, um, what's he, he requisitions furniture for <laughs> trans Canada. Not just that, but he went to, I don't know. I told you what his title he's was. A, he's the man. Yeah, you're right. He's <laughs> the manager of facility services. So, uh, our brother-in-law, uh, is a rig pig. Um, not exactly. He makes half a million dollars <laughs> a year off of fracking. What exactly um, is a rig pig? I've never heard that phrase before. You yeah. haven't? <laughs> <laughs> so up here, it's that's like it's sort of a derogatory phrase. Is it? Yes, it's not like <laughs> looked upon kindly. I have to admit, it doesn't sound like a compliment. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> But that's what, like, when you go out and you work on the oil rigs. The fracking wells. Yeah, you, that's what you're derogatorily called. 
by uh, by people who don't work on fracking well. <laughs> it's fascinating that you two found each other. I mean, you could think in the, um, among the community of Ashtangis, how many people would overlap with families in oil and gas, or among the community of people in oil and gas, how many would also be Ashtangis? I think either one. I think you guys might be the only people sitting within within <laughs> 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 your Venn diagram. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, and it's interesting because our, you know, the cultures of of Texas and Alberta are very, similar. very tied, very similar, and um, you know, even in Trans Canada, where my dad works, he works for the pipeline industry, so they have a, a office in Houston. One of their yeah. main offices in, is in Houston, and yeah, the Houston the other Texans, one is here in Calgary. That's his team. Like, yeah, that's he is a diehard Houston Texans fan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, there is some overlap. <laughs> but, but it's what's fascinating to me is like is that these guys are making huge middle class fortunes off of um, the fracking industry, but that that it's actually, I mean, it's actually a, a pile of sand, and it's. I think you said something that it's it's really it's based on investment capital, which is speculative, and it's not actually based on cash. So we're like, this is a disaster waiting to happen. Well, I don't think it's waiting to happen anymore. I think it has happened. I think the double whammy of this spring of um, Russia and Saudi Arabia refusing to cut production, even though Trump eventually did wrangle them into cutting production a little bit, combined with the decrease in demand due to COVID has just completely crushed the industry and the bankruptcies are starting to pile up. So, yeah. but, but I, I wrote a, an op-ed for the, for the New York Times after, at that point because my, my argument was that everybody's going to blame this on COVID and Saudi Arabia and Russia, but that's just not true because the industry was fragile and every investors knew it was fragile. And even before this, investors were getting reluctant to put in capital because they were saying, wait, 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 where are the returns? So the, the, the problem, the proverbial shit was already hitting the fan even before the events of this spring. So, but I think that, I think the disaster is no longer waiting to happen. I think it is well in process. Mm-hmm. In Aubrey McClendon is is kind of like he's the canary in the co- the coal mine. Like, can you tell us tell our listeners a bit more about him and and what happened to him? Yes. So I um, got obsessed with Aubrey because he's one of those larger than life characters in, 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 in the world, and he was also a true believer. And true believers, I no longer. I used to. Oh, let me see. I actually will always have a sort of soft spot for true believers, even though I see that they can be the most dangerous people in the world. My um, father-in-law actually said to me when I was talking about Jeff Skilling, the former CEO of Enron, I said, but Jeff believed. My former father-in-law looked at me and he said, Bethany, the most dangerous people in human history believed. And I thought, well, that's, that's, that's actually true. So when I say, when I say he believed, I mean that with, with, I mean that as a, a statement with a lot of depth to it, not just as an, oh, he believed, look how sweet that was. Um, but he, 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 but he, he believed and he really, that, go ahead. Sorry. That was uh, that was Chris's dad who said that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I see. I did my homework. <laughs> Your homework. <laughs> Number one down. He'll be happy. Um, anyway. Um, 
But Aubrey, Aubrey really believed that the United States could become the world's leading producer of cheap natural gas and that cheap natural gas had the potential to totally reshape our economy. And there is still this argument in environmental circles about whether natural gas really is a bridge fuel to a cleaner future or not. Put, put that aside. I think Aubrey b- believed that it, that it, that it was. But he, he was also, he was the sort of salesman that could walk into a room and get a room full of people who hated him and who were skeptical of him to just invest in whatever he was selling. People just, people fell in love with him. He had that kind of incredibly charismatic personality. And he was kind of a Renaissance man. I mean, he used company money to acquire this, you know, old boat collection and this old map collection and, you know, had houses all over the world. He, for a while, was the largest private owner of, of rare of wine. Um, so he had... Wow. Just incredibly omnivorous appetite for for beautiful, interesting things, and he liked to share them with people. He wasn't somebody who um, who hoarded them. He wasn't a collector. You know, he wanted he he a collector in the sense of this is mine. I'm going to put it away in a dark basement and not let anybody see it. He wanted to he wanted to share share things with people. Um, he essentially went bankrupt three times. Um, once in the late 90s, again in 2008, when the price of natural gas collapsed and Goldman Sachs sold all the shares that he'd, he'd margined, um, and then he effectively died bankrupt. But the thing I liked about Aubrey is unlike some of the other business characters I've covered, he went down with the ship. He 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 didn't just spend other people's, risk other people's money. He, he, he risked his own money. Um, but the interesting thing is Chesapeake stock price was all over the map, and at one point, it was an incredibly valuable company, but Chesapeake never produced free cash flow. They, they could sort of the most basic measure of, of money making. Um, and that is why you're right. Um, Chesapeake and Aubrey were canaries in the coal mine for the whole industry because the industry wanted to say, oh, that's just Aubrey and that's just Chesapeake. But it really wasn't. That was actually the whole industry. The fundamentals. And and so he um, mysteriously died in a in a head-on collision with a bridge. Yes. He, yeah. He had yeah. This, he had this accident right after um, the US government indicted him for bid rigging. And uh. the indictment would have caused him to lose everything because he had um, he had personally guaranteed some of the loans he had taken out and there were um, there were um, covenants in those loans that if he were found guilty in this investigation, that the banks would be able to call, call the loan. So it would have, it would have, it would have destroyed him, but it's very easy to look at this. And most people do and say it must've been suicide, but running counter to that is that people who saw Aubrey in those last months didn't see a different guy. He was just as he has always, always been cheerful, upbeat, sure he was going to work it out. You know, this was a guy who had come back from the dead several times before. And so I, I'm, I'm not certain it was, it was suicide. That seems like the obvious answer, but some part of me thinks guys like that who are just forever optimists, who always believe that they're going to rise again, that they're a cat with not just nine lives, but an infinite number of lives. That's not a guy who's going to give up and kill himself. So I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You know, this, when I was reading that Aubrey was in Chesapeake, um, what was it called? Chesapeake Investment? Yeah. Ch- Chesapeake. It was Chesapeake Energy Company. That Chesapeake was- Energy Company. It was, it, it was really funny to me because there's a company called Chesapeake Urology that uh, backed on um, private equity money is buying up all of the urology 
companies um, and physicians in the country. And there's just a huge interesting interest um, in private equity in the healthcare market right now. My mom, um, as, as our listeners know, because she was on the, on the show a couple weeks ago, uh, is, a, is one of the largest urology recruitment companies. Uh, and she currently has three private equity companies sniffing around her company, looking to invest or buy or purchase. And there's just so much of it. And it, it makes me think that, um, gosh, there's a little, we're in a little bit of a, of a investment capital private equity bubble right now. And I'm, I'm wondering if you had any, any thoughts on, on that. Well, I'm really worried about it. Actually, some of the same forces that um, enabled the rise of uh, fracking have enabled the rise of private equity, too. And so in the wake of the financial crisis, and I'm so sorry I took a bite of brownie because I was... We <laughs> 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 shouldn't be saying that we're on a, on a podcast with yogis that I'm a brownie in the middle of the afternoon. I'm sure you're edibles. They're edibles. You know, so, unfortunately, they're just edibles, but not edibles. <laughs> in the middle of the afternoon. Anyway, in the wake of the uh, financial crisis, the Federal Reserve really cut interest rates in order to help stimulate the economy. And that has the effect of making debt really cheap. Right. And so debt is what fracking companies needed because they needed to raise these mammoth amounts of money in order to go frack wells. And um, debt is what enables private equity because they use tons of debt to do their deals. And the cheaper the cost of debt is, the better it is for private equity firms. So you saw private equity go from a business everyone knew, which had become more powerful um, in the early 2000s, to really exploding um, after the financial crisis, to the extent that Business Week actually wrote a story last fall that was entitled, It's Private Equity's World and We Just Live in It. Mm. And that is frighteningly true because old school private equity, when it first came into existence in the late 80s, had a, had a point to it, which was taking over a business, taking it out of the public market, giving it time without the eyes of, of, of stockholders on it to get itself together, making it function more efficiently. There was actually a sort of core reason to it, in my view, and this is not entirely accepted, although there are certainly other people who think like me, private equity has become completely bastardized in the era of cheap debt because now they buy businesses. Young kids straight out of business school who don't have a clue how to manage a business are in there figuring out ways to cut costs and lay people off. And they use cheap debt in order to be able to load up the companies with debt, pay themselves huge dividends. So they've made all their money and they leave these businesses um, with no flexibility and hobbled hobbled by debt um and i don't think it's gonna pan out well for the for the for the u.s economy and the, the oddest um part of this is that some of the biggest enablers of private equity firms are pension funds um oh. and pension funds are investing in private equity because they're trying to make returns they're all behind on the money they need to pay retirees and because interest rates are so low they can't make money in fixed income investments so they're giving money to private equity firms in this sort of desperate need to get the returns they need to pay to pay their people but the funny thing is it's private equity that is coming in and slashing pensions and laying people people off. So, and so there are many just insane parts of our economy that nobody's looking at this and saying, well, wait, 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 people wouldn't 
need as much for retirement if they could just keep their goddamn jobs and their pensions. And so the whole the whole thing is 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 insane. And I just I don't think there are that many people at private equity firms who really are so brilliant that they can come into these businesses and run them so much better than the people who know these businesses, especially when these people are kids right out of Harvard Business School who have very high opinions of themselves, but very little experience in, in, in the work world. So that I don't I don't love that. And you've seen now in the wake of COVID, private equity firms went into this. I think, oh, I'm gonna get the number wrong. I wanna say they had about two trillion dollars in, in cash on the sidelines. And so as if if as things get crushed in the in the wake of COVID, you can expect private equity to swoop in one, once again. Blackstone, which is a big private equity firm, is I think, the largest owner of rental housing in the country now because they bought up so much real estate in the wake of the financial crisis. And how that works well for Americans over time, I I don't know. I, <laughs> But I, I'm not. I'm not sure that private equity, healthcare in particular, is a is a place where it really can't just be all about making money. It can't be all about cutting costs and making money. It just, it just, it just can't be. There are more dimensions to that business than just profits. And I'm not sure that I think going back to oil, I think private equity and healthcare are the proverbial oil and water. They just should not go together. Mm-hmm. But you're, but you're, but I'm, you could probably get somebody on the podcast who would argue with me and point out all the wonderful things private equity has done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at least with gigantic, large HMOs like Kaiser Permanente, they're run by physicians. Yes. They're not run by uh, 23 year olds with a cocaine habit. Right. My sister works at Kaiser. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's a doctor at Kaiser and it's actually very well run and. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I was a happy Kaiser member for years. I, 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 I'm reminded, though, of what um, Ted, Senator Ted Cruz said yesterday that, uh, look, if, if, if you vote for Joe Biden, you're going to end up with Elizabeth Warren as uh, Secretary of Treasury. And he said that as a warning. <laughs> and you said, <laughs> really? <laughs> but, well, that's actually... That's actually quite a good idea. Um, <laughs> what uh, do you do? You have any recommendations for what? Oh, what what could Harmony and I do that could could help this situation? Like, just is, do you have any recommendations as a as a as a journalist to, with to listeners with yeah with with bubble economies around uh. investment capital and. And which includes the the bubble for fracking, the bu- the bubble for private equity, for venture capital. Well, it's think, all potentially catastrophic, and we all have kids. I think what you're doing is is great because you're doing a podcast that touches on business business topics for perhaps an audience who 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 wouldn't normally this wouldn't be their thing, right? And so the more you can make people care about this stuff, I. I think this has changed, but don't you remember we're we're all about the same age, right? How old are you guys? Uh, I I think we're five years apart, all three of us. Okay, so when I graduated from college, there there was just a sort of sense that the business world was kind of this ugly thing. And if you were artsy and you were interesting, well, then you just didn't know anything about that ugly, dirty thing called the business world. And I think a little bit too now with what's going on with, with, with COVID where people are really dismissive of the economy and people say, well, if you care about the economy, you don't care about people's lives. And I always think the economy 
it is people's lives. If the <laughs> were just this thing that was detached from people's lives, then no, we wouldn't give a damn about it. But it, it actually is is people's lives. And so I think if people are less naive and less dismissive about about the economy and about business and get that it is fundamental to the way we all live, indeed to our ability to live and to feed our families. And and it can be really, really interesting too. I always say about the business world, it just proves the old proves the old adage, truth is stranger than fiction, over and over <laughs> again. I mean you cannot make up these stories, whether it's Enron or the global financial crisis or you know, or Aubrey McClendon. You just you you couldn't do better if you sat down and let your imagination run wild. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and if, if people knew that and realized how important and how interesting it is and weren't dismissive of it or sort of intimidated by it, then I think people with all different perspectives could bring pressure to bear to to make sure that the right the right thing happens because you wouldn't have a entire class of intelligent people who just distance themselves from these sorts of things because they think it's either beneath them or not interesting. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I just think you're amazing. I th- I think you're that you're just you're incredibly fearless to go out there and and attack the stuff and and walk around and and find out what's going on and tell and telling people about it. So I, I'm just I'm really I'm really grateful that you're out there doing it. It makes me feel like we have champions. Well, thank you. I think you give me too much credit, but thank you. I want to come practice with you guys. Oh, you to practice with somebody can get me the last six inches of Karanavasana. I'm almost well, we both have done it in the past. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could coach you into it. <laughs> or out of it, maybe. Uh, I can get into it. Do you want to get into it or out of it? <laughs> also, we could also spend a lot of time convincing you that trying is pointless. <laughs> that might be even better yet. That'd be better, right? <laughs> That'd be better. <laughs> and there, you've got no chance of getting across the border anyway. But we'll maybe we'll set up a a Zoom call and try and see what we can see. That would be fun. I would love that. And maybe one of these years, um, we'll all be able to get across borders again. <laughs> that would be wonderful. That would be great. <laughs> where do you uh, Where do you practice in Chicago now? So I pra- oh, you probably don't. No, so I practice mostly at home. I was going to a studio. There's a lovely teacher here named Bridget Piacenti, who's wonderful. And I um, was going to see her. I was trying to get there once a week. Um, but I end up practicing at home a lot, just with yeah. with kids and my job. It is just easier to be in my PJs and just go straight to the mat than yeah. um, than, than to go anywhere. So, But I have realized uh, I started trying to go to see Bridget because it, it – it just, there's nothing like a, a studio practice. Um, and then when I, I've, I've usually spend a bunch of time in LA over the holidays and hope to do so again. And I was practicing with Jürgen Christensen. Oh, Jürgen. Oh, nice. oh, who I. My uh, fellow Svenska. I love him. Um, <laughs> that, that I found his practicing with him. I found life changing. I really, really enjoyed it. It's a, oh. it's a lovely room of just oh. nice people. So he is such a square head. yes it's so nice as a mom and then also like with your full on career it's so nice to like be able to to create that time and space when you can just go and like escape and practice and not 
right? have any, anyone bothering you. <laughs> and that's one of the great glories of going to a studio too, is that you're committed to it. Whereas practicing at home, there's always a little tiny piece of your brain that isn't quite in it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're thinking, Oh, what, what's the kids doing or what's going on out there? Or, Oh, right. I have to get this other stuff done. Right. Or maybe I should just go send that email and then come back. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so many distractions. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yeah, we feel you. We feel the pain. <laughs> well, lovely to talk to you guys. Yeah. I get to see you again soon in Harmony. I hope I get to meet you in person. I would really like that. I would yeah. love that. Yeah. Let's and people can uh, order your books off Amazon. Is there any other place they should go to find them? Uh, I wish I could tell them to go somewhere else, but unfortunately, Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? That's another $200 billion. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> we'll go for 20 but <laughs> for sure. Oh, or, or they could go to their local bookstore they're, they're possibly That's there no. they're possibly there exactly oh, anyway, um, thank you guys so much and have a lovely afternoon thanks. you too thank you bye thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony with me your host Harmony Slater you can find out more information on my website harmonyslater.com and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in